0: This is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. In this episode, I talk with Sean Wilson, Associate Professor in the Indigenous Studies Department at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Sean and I have a really fun conversation talking about writing, the process of writing, research, Indigenous research methods, and his book, Research is Ceremony. Sean Wilson, welcome. Thanks. Before we start, can you introduce yourself for everyone listening? I
1: can, although, you know, I got to say, even when we start, this is one of those things that it's like really weird. It's it's very strange as an indigenous person uh how we introduce ourselves even is often quite different than how that's going to happen in the mainstream so we just have different ways of doing things obviously so um sort of the mainstream way of introducing yourself often comes across like uh like i'm telling you my cv or something um (laughs) which (laughs) could come if you know if you do that in an indigenous community everyone's going to think you're really um uh arrogant and conceited. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, no no stuck say. up
0: people on this podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um so yeah, I'm Sean Wilson. I'm from a Pasquat Cree Nation, which is kind of in the center of Canada, if you can imagine left-rightedness and um also well, I guess it's not really the center as far as north-south goes, but it's sort of center of Manitoba, north and south. Um so on the Saskatchewan River Delta. Um So I grew up on the reserve there uh, and um, went away to school at a bunch of different places and traveled around the world quite a bit. Um, But now I've finally ended up, I'm at the moment, (laughs) working at the University of British Columbia at the Okanagan campus in the Indigenous Studies program. Um, So along the way, done a lot of different things, I suppose, that sort of have... um, made me who I am. Uh, One of the big things, obviously, that has had the biggest impact on my career is writing the book Research is Ceremony.
0: Tell us about Research and Ceremony.
1: Basically, I started writing and doing, um, when I was doing my doctorate, uh, a lot of the the problems that I was having that were associated with my doctorate was that um, there were a lot of Indigenous people at that time that had gone back to university or that... We're we're working in university settings, but we're having to use uh, sort of white stream um, Western research methodologies. Just because uh, you know we had we all knew that we had our own ways. As Indigenous people had our own ways of doing research. But th- those ways hadn't really been written about yet in an academic sense, so it was hard to justify it. So we had to do these big roundabout justifications for why we were doing the way things the way we were doing them. Um, so that was part of the problem I was having when I was doing my own research. And once I started, to, like the, for my research, I was looking at um, indigenous uh, doctoral students and how it was it were possible to it was possible for us to hang on to our culture and stay connected to our communities, but at the same time still be successful at university or sort of in like in a mainstream setting. Um, But as I was doing that, it was the people that I was working with that were saying, well, yeah, you can do that. (laughs) (laughs) And that would be nice. But what would actually be more useful for us is if you would actually write about the methodology that we're all trying to use um, because then it becomes not just a research project for you, it becomes a a research project that has benefit for all Indigenous people. Um, so that's what it turned into, uh, talking more about the methodology behind how we do research rather than the, the topic of what we're researching.
0: I, I think back to my time as a student and, and studying research methodologies. Uh, and now as a writer, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around writing about research methodologies. Te- ex- describe that process for me. Is is it is it as difficult as it kind of feels like it might be?
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because it is, uh, it's kind of like, well, I always tell people when they're, you know, that's sort of my main job these days is supervising other students. So, and I tell people, you can't get a doctor of philosophy degree without looking into the philosophy behind what you're doing, Um, but actually looking at our underlying philosophy behind why we do things is a very strange process. And it's like, you go about your everyday life. You don't have to very often stop and say, why did I do that? Or if you do, it's usually a very mechanistic sort of, I did this in reaction to something that happened just before it, or I did this because it's just a force of habit. We very rarely sort of look at um what does the way that i did do things how does that is that a, how is that a reflection of the culture that i'm a part of how is that a reflection of the underlying belief system um that i that i'm attempting to follow and um how is that really sort of connected to the whole idea of knowledge in general and how we go about uh, creating or expanding on knowledge. So it is, it's a very difficult and weird process. Uh, <laughs> it mm-hmm. sort of involves looking at everything at a meta level and um, yeah, it's 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 strange.
0: Right. When you were writing this, uh, what, what would you say was your relationship with writing at the time? Like, w- did you consider yourself a writer? Uh, were you more of a researcher or was this something that came out about the necessity to, you know, just document the kind of work that you were doing?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I was... Uh, i I didn't consider myself a a writer at all and i think i wasn't a very good writer either um Mm. well i I think that it's kind of like drawing anyone can draw but there's a big difference between uh someone that just draws things um like me that it's probably a five-year-old could draw as well as i can and and an artist (laughs) that creates work of art when they're drawing things um I guess they're all works of art, but there's sort of different layers of of complexity and skill involved. Um, so, as a writer, I think I was I was generally like, I mean, I was adequate, and probably was able to get my point across in a way that was meeting the needs of what I was writing in sci- sort of scientific sort of sense. But it wasn't until I started thinking about um, specifically how writing is a reflection of the knowledge system as well. Like thinking really about the underlying knowledge and what am I trying to portray in my writing that sort of changed the way that I wrote. And and it was actually part of this was when I was started writing my thesis actually <clears throat> for my doctorate, um, I was struggling. <laughs> so I was, you know, I had gotten like a couple chapters of my thesis done. And I was just like, it was like trying to pull out teeth. It was very difficult. Um, I think so. At one point, I got fairly frustrated with it all. And, and it was like, why am I even bothering to do this? <laughs> and um, it was my partner, Helen, that said to me, well, why are you doing this? Um, and for me, it was, well, that was a relatively easy answer at that point. It's like I was doing it for my kids so that my children could grow up in a space where they could, if they so chose, do research or go to university or do whatever they wanted to do, but in a way that was more congruent with our Indigenous um, philosophy and beliefs. So it was like I wanted to make things better for my kids. Um, so that's why I was doing that. So she said, well, why don't you have that in your mind as you're writing? It will help to give you some motivation uh, for what you're doing. So just having that and thinking about that personal relationship that I have with my sons totally changed the way that I started to write. Um, And then envisioning a very specific audience for my writing and who I was writing toward. And it started to build like a relationship between me and the person I was writing for. It made it easy because it was my sons. But I've sort of carried that over now into how I write Everything and start to think about well, who is this going to be re- who is going to be reading this, and how can I build a stronger relationship with them, um, so that that knowledge that we're sharing together through this writing process, is sort of me as a storyteller and them as a story listener, even though it's a <laughs> in a written format, so a story writer and a story reader, um, but sort of getting it back more to that basic relationship level that is there in a story. T- teller and and listener relationship where it is like a more of a personal transmission of information that the writing usually is one step removed and tries to make it a bit more abstract and a bit more universal. um, Which I think tends not to touch people at at the same level. So you can touch people's intellect that way, but it very rarely touches people's heart or their emotions or their, their very being in the world. So I think once I switched to that style of writing that was deliberately um deliberately addressing the reader, uh initially through the relationship with my sons, but then sort of as like a proxy relationship, but then then as I've progressed specifically addressing uh the readers. Um it really changed, and I think that that's a lot of it changed my writing style, and it changed my. I think it changed my ability to write because it, writing became so much easier. Become it became because it became more like engaging in a, <laughs> albeit one sided, but engaging in a conversation with someone. So I, was, I can imagine then people what they would sort of be responding, and I'm so I'm writing more like one side of a conversation. And oftentimes now even in the things i'm putting <laughs> putting in others people's words is the other side of the conversation as well um, but and it, you know from the feedback I've gotten from people that have read um, especially especially research ceremony but other other things that I've written as well that they've really appreciated that, and it' sort of allowed the stuff that I've written about to really um you know, they've engaged with it at that deeper level. So not just at the intellectual level, but also like it really felt an emotional level. Um, so I get some really nice emails from um, people who've read the book that just, you know, talk about how it sort of touched their lives and sort of changed the way they thought about things um, and changed the way they do things. So it's it, it has an impact on them.
0: Mm, that must be so fulfilling considering, like, I imagine the audience is, is a lot of students who are being assigned um, this new concept. I mean, research methods, when you can come in contact with that for the first time in university is like, I, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> and then to get a book that is accessible and that um, that actually speaks to people. I mean, that sounds like you really you really probably achieved what you set out to do
1: well i sure hope so <laughs> it's been <laughs> it's been fun and i had to get some uh some things that just are are so beautiful as like just this summer i got a email from um some people at western university and it, w- it was uh they were running one of their courses online and it, so they'd sent me a, a zoom screenshot you know as <laughs> everything's gone on zoom these days <laughs> uh with yeah. this picture of all these students, like about thirty students, all holding up a copy of Research Ceremony, and with the biggest smiles on their faces, and <laughs> and it, um, oh wow! That they, they wrote in the email how it had touched touched all of them, and they all felt so um, great. So it was like, yeah, that was kind of like made me, it choked me all up, made me cry, <laughs> just thinking about, oh, <laughs> that actually does have an impact on on people. Yeah. So I think mainly I get, I think. Emails from Indigenous students that say, oh, it's just so nice having someone that is um, put to words what they've always felt. Um, And then that's really fulfilling. And then I also get a lot of, probably the second biggest group of people that I get emails from are um, non-Indigenous people asking if it's okay for them to use these methodologies as well. Um, So it's obviously has
0: touched them. This book was written quite a long time ago, in 2008, and uh, you would have been among the the first uh, academics talking about Indigenous research methods. Tell us about what it was like at that time to put this uh, research out there, on whose shoulders you were standing, and then how uh, have things changed since the first printing of the book?
1: There, there always, I think, sir, there were Indigenous scholars that were working in the background, um, and I think well, that's actually part one of the chapters of the book is talking about all these people on whose shoulders I'm standing. Although that sounds like a Google Scholar ad, then, but um, <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it, it is.
0: <laughs> I like I like the idea of just giant people on top of each other.
1: <laughs> it's like well, it, we could sort of reframe it and sort of think about it as like I don't know for those of you that are familiar with reading Thomas King, it's like there's, there's, there's turtles all the way down, right? So it's like indigenous academics there's are all the way down. I'm standing on someone else's shoulder. They're standing on the shoulders of the people before them type of thing. (laughs) Um, So it, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people, but I think it's particular in particular, my parents, um, both my parents, academics. and they both started off like my dad uh, grew up on the trap line and my mom grew up on a farm. So they are both the first um, people in their families to go to university and they both went on to become um, professors of education. So I had their, um, you know, their example in sort of, um, it, well, it made it just so much easier for me having them sort of breaking the trail for me. And um, it just made it so that it, like going to university was, in our family, it was not something that was even questioned or you didn't really think about it. You just did it sort of. I always say it's kind of like you don't really think about whether you're going to send your kid to grade one, they just go, (laughs) it's just part of our normal culture. So it was part of the normal culture in our family to go to university. So that made it, you know, that was the cultural norm in our family. Um, but then, at university obviously there it, there was it became a matter of trying to figure out where I fit um, and you know i didn 't see a place for myself fitting very easily within the hard sciences, which is where I started off at university so it wasn 't until I changed to um, studying community psychology that I sort of saw a place for me to fit in there, and part of that was having for the first time ever other than my parents. <laughs> Having indigenous professors, um, and that just having those people there, kind of as role models, but not necessarily even just as role models. It was just like the this is possible, Uh, you know, and realizing what was possible sort of made it it, me realize that I could keep going and go further and 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 really work on this. Um, So yeah. So when I first published research ceremony, I think the first. Well, there was a a couple of, a lot of people working on this sort of idea and a, and a lot of us actually sort of working on it very similar times, but Linda Smith's um, decolonizing methodologies um, was, I think that was 1998 that came out. And that was right when I was started working on my PhD. So that sort of was a, a real sort of key publication at the time, because it, it, did sort of call out the fact that you know the the whole western research system was systematically um, disempowering indigenous people and and was part of the whole colonization process was happening through research Um, so that sort of created a clear space for me to then sort of take that further and say all right so we need to decolonize western systems but I would say it's you have to take that then one step further and say, all right, so once we decolonize Western systems, how do we take that further and say, well, what would an indigenous system look like? And so for me, that's really what research a ceremony became then is this, what does an indigenous system look like? Um, you know, and uh, it's it's kind of funny to hear about the same time I was working on uh, my book. Maggie Kovach was working on her Indigenous Methodologies book, too. So it was like we both published sort of within about a year of each other. But it was kind of <laughs> it's kind of neat because it was like to me, that's a really good indication that it was like a uh, an idea whose time had come that uh, mm-hmm. it, you know and and since then there's been a, a really big proliferation of books about indigenous methodology and more and more people writing about it now so it's like it really has opened up the field um to allow way more people to to express their voice in this area
0: mm mm-hmm. well to to just like give a bit of my own uh, background in this world. Um, I I first came across research methodologies in undergrad while I was in Toronto and it was in political science. But I did my masters at the University of Saskatchewan and I started in 2010. And so all of the research methodologies books that we were given were were the Indigenous research methodologies books because it was the land based um, social justice masters out of the the School of Education at the University of Saskatchewan. So these names and these textbook names, I'm just like it's like a total flashback that you you were a part of this world that helped to actually normalize for a student like me a white student from ontario to really only have this interaction with research methodologies being from that that indigenous perspective
1: yeah, yeah, that, and that's kind of cool. I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's totally. I'm, I'm just like this is, this is really neat. Um, where do you see this field evolving in the in the next couple of years? How how is is indigenous research methodologies going to continue to grow within the academy?
1: Well, I think that sort of the there's sort of two ways I think this is happening. Uh, um, one is the um, the way that we speak about so. But I think that the underlying Indigenous philosophy is practiced everywhere on the land. So it's just now, it's just sort of growing is how do we get this philosophy across to other people in a way that they can understand it? So obviously the best way to do that is to have an experiential sort of learning process that people are engaging with on the land so they can sort of really feel that land-based knowledge flowing through what they're doing. Um, So the next best thing after that is trying to figure out, well, how do we get that experiential knowledge into writing? Because the writing process at the moment is very sort of removed. It's still, writing itself is still mostly, well, especially academic writing is, very, is mostly very sort of removed and sort of one-dimensional in that it only addresses the, the rational or intellectual aspect of trying to get knowledge across it. It's not very good at getting across that experiential felt understanding of knowledge. So I think that's one way that we are changing and progressing and um, advancing in this area is how we actually write about things needs to change. And I think so a lot more people now are, are, like, are getting into this and they're understanding different ways of of. Expressing their ideas, be that through story or it's oftentimes through the use of metaphor or story with a capital S. Um, you know, that these stories that we have and have traditionally had and passed on orally, we're trying to figure out different ways that we can transmit them digitally or in writing um, that sort of still carry that same relationality within the stories. So that it, it, it's, uh, even though it is still words on a page somehow the the use of story and the use of metaphor I think has a much greater ability to transmit that felt knowledge than than sort of mainstream academic writing um so I think that's where things are progressing in that sense um but I think also the other sense is that you know there's now so much more um land based education happening that it is also happening at the experiential level on the land and and that's so it's not necessarily making it into writing yet, but it is happening that that advancement of Indigenous philosophy, Indigenous methodologies is happening out on the land. And that's fantastic for those people that can that can have those experiences.
0: Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of all of the, the, the theory that we studied sitting literally on grass, <laughs> either at the University of Saskatchewan or um, up... Uh, up on the, the Churchill River, which was just an amazing experience to do for a master's degree. <laughs> One of the questions that I'm asking everybody that's participating in this is, why is independent radical publishing important?
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah. Because, well, I think that that's the only way that things change is if someone's pushing the boundaries and you're going outside of the sort of mainstream. I think any, any sort of system get, can become stuck Every once in a while so you need something that pushes it outside of its comfort zone so it's like it, it sometimes you know it requires like a pendulum to push things way too far outside of people's comfort zones to make people realize actually oh they were stuck in a comfort zone so without radical thinking and radical publishers that are sort of helping that radical thinking to get out uh, the world's not going to change because it's too easy to stay stay in a rut and stay in that comfort zone. Radical thinking is it's not, for me, there's like some things that just slightly push outside of the comfort zone and they're like constantly up against the boundaries. And that's fine, but it's um, not enough, I don't think. we need something that's sort of going to push things so far out that it, it actually helps then when you push so far outside of that central zone, it helps people to actually be able to be have that outsider perspective and look back on what that central zone is doing to keep people in there it 's like it 's really hard to examine your own culture it 's not till sometimes you have like an experience of traveling that you sort of realize what your own culture is because uh, you see other people and how they do things and why they do things, so you can sort of start to think about, oh yeah, my culture is different from that um, so I think that that 's what radical publishing can do is give uh, a perspective from the outside that helps people that may be stuck in that central area to start to see what that is and see how it could be different. Um, you know, if you've never been outside of that central zone, you don't recognize that there is anything different or that there is a possibility of difference. So that's, for me, that radical um, radical publishing is necessary to help enlighten the mainstream from the outside. Yeah, it's it's totally essential. Otherwise things are never gonna change.
0: I'm also asking uh, uh, the same questions to everybody who is participating in this podcast, uh, shorter questions that um, help to get us to know you and your thought process uh, related to writing and reading a little bit better. So the first question is, what's your favorite place to read? And what's your favorite place to write? I'm sorry, that's two questions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, my favorite place to read is usually in bed. (laughs) (laughs) Great. It depends what I'm reading. Uh, um, Sometimes I end up having to sit at my desk because I fall asleep if something is a little bit boring when I'm reading it, but I know that I have to read it because I need that information. Um, So the reading that I do, though, for pleasure, it's often, you know, (laughs) just sitting in bed or... um, you know, it's nice to be able to read outside. But if I could figure out a better way to have, um, carry some shade around with me so that I could sit in the sun, <laughs> <laughs> but not have my book in bright sunlight so I could actually read it without squinting. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so that, that sort of ties into the sort of the same thing with my writing. Um, I think that there's two kinds of writing that I do. One kind of writing is it's it's kind of fun to do at the beach. And that is the sort of more creative sort of freestyle style of writing. Um, and I actually do, uh, every once in a while, I just do like writing exercises where I just sit down and write like, and don't allow myself to stop. So it's like, even if I have to be writing on the page, what am I supposed to write next? I just can't stop writing, so I don't know what to write. <laughs> so it turns into this, this uh, weird sort of uh, stream of consciousness writing. Um, but then some, when I get into it, it helps to sort of flesh out or not flesh out ideas. It sorts of helps to bring out new ideas, I think. And for me, the best place to do that is at the beach. But the other part of writing is uh, for me thinking of it more like actually like a job and um, turning those ideas into something that's um, a bit more polished that works better to actually help other people understand those ideas. So it's not just me, um, sort of thinking out loud. It's me thinking out loud in a way that's going to allow someone else to understand it. I usually have to do that at a desk and it's usually in, um, um, kind of like a more formal setup for doing that because it, for me, it requires me to, uh, yeah, you know, it is that shift out of, um, uh, me expressing my ideas into that, me deliberately expressing them in such a way that you will understand them. So that requires me to change my thinking a little bit and change my style. So I usually do that just sitting at my desk. Yeah.
0: What books are on your to-read pile right now? I've
1: got too many of them to list. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> there's books that i feel like i need to read because i need the information in them and there's books that i want to read so the, probably the books that i want to read it's like sitting beside my bed right now because i haven't started reading it yet is um this place which is a graphic novel that's 150 years retold it's trying to tell the history of canada from a, a from a different perspective so I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading that yeah um you know i've got I don't know, like about 10 other books (laughs) that I have on my to-do list. One of them is about uh, Maori philosophy. So the philosophy of the indigenous people of uh, Aotearoa or New Zealand. Um, So I'm looking forward to reading that one too. Um, But then if, I don't know, I, I I kind of devour fiction uh, too quickly to sort of have a list of things to read because it's more like I've always got, um, about three different books on the go and I go through them, you know, two or three a week. Yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. Do you have a ritual that prepares you to write?
1: I do. Um, <laughs> and it's funny because, you know, that's a big part of, you know, research is ceremony. And and actually probably one of the things that, you know, Fernwood's been asking me for a, a new edition <laughs> for quite a while. And that's one of the things that's going to be in there is specifically more about the ritual aspects of ceremony. Um, and how we can use ritual in, in a more um, productive way, and to do things more mindfully. So I have a, I, I do have a ritual, and it works really well when I follow it. And it, in, uh, um, but it doesn't work so well when I don't follow it. <laughs> so it's a good ritual, obviously. Uh, and that is, is trying to write at the exact same time every day, uh, and before I open my email, because I, and I know that you know everyone that lives in the busy modern world it's as soon as you open your email it's like oh you get this big list of things that you have to do for today so it's just a matter of of uh coming to my office and closing the door um and stopping and grounding myself for a little while and just like trying to empty up my brain of everything else that I'm supposed to be doing turning on my computer and only opening my word processing um not opening anything else and then starting to write and then again it's that thing of not allowing myself to stop writing so it's writing for half an hour and it's amazing how much writing you can get done in half an hour once you get on a roll and part of it is also sort of thinking of it uh, as as a profession um uh, (laughs) i actually took a writing uh, workshop uh, a couple years ago (laughs) it was really 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 good um the, so the, the facilitator was talking about, well, if you think of it this way, so many people say they get writer's block, but if you are a professional author, or if your job is writing, that's really just bullshit. How would you feel if a plumber came over to your house and sort of put down their tools and sat there and thought about what they were going to do for, you know, a day or a, a week or even an hour before they started working? You wouldn't allow them to have plumber's block <laughs> so as a professional. <laughs> Uh, Writer's block is just, it's a fallacy that you allow yourself to fall into. So you should just do it. You don't have to produce good writing all of the time. Sometimes you just need to get started. And that's the hardest part is just getting started. Uh, So it it just reminds myself, (laughs) and I think that's such a good pun, having plumber's block, that I think, all right, I'm not allowing myself to have plumber's block when I'm writing. So I just have to write, and it just means you know, oftentimes the first 10 minutes worth of stuff is, you know, absolute bullshit. It doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't really matter because it gets me to a point where I am, you know, write 20 minutes worth of really good stuff. And I've noticed that if, when I do this ritually and I do it sort of, you know, same time every day, the more I do it, the, the more productive it becomes. And my brain gets into that space where I am writing productively a lot more quickly
0: Mm, I'm gonna be thinking about that for a long time. The plumber that shows up with ennui and just stares at the overflowing toilet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, how am I gonna address this? I'm yeah, not sure.
0: Exactly. <laughs> I just don't don't What's know what motivation? to do. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, that's that's really great. That thank you for that. <laughs> Uh, what are you doing for fun these days?
1: <laughs> oh, a lot of stuff. Uh, certain, I like going for hikes and stuff. And one of the things I just did recently, I got my uh, scuba diving license last year, so I started scuba diving. <laughs> so that was one of those things that was kind of on my things. You know, when I was really young, I thought before I turned thirty, I would learn how to scuba dive. So that was more like, well, did it hit my fifties? At least I got there eventually. Uh, so yeah, I've been out to the Great Barrier Reef a couple times scuba diving. That was so much fun and so beautiful. Yeah, um, But yeah, otherwise, I, you know, I like going out and hiking and getting out into nature a little bit more. Um, so that's my main fun things these days. What is a book that
0: has changed your life?
1: I That, that is really hard to pin down to just one thing because I read a lot. Uh, I know it, it may even be like, the, the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> Which sounds kinda of, sounds kinda of weird, but it's kind of um that was one of those you know but I've and I I've always read it and and uh, I can remember when I was a little kid my mom used to have to come into like it'd be like midnight it's say like, turn off the light and stop reading <laughs> so I've always read <laughs> a lot. Um but yeah I don't know there's these certain Books for me where it's the it's the story that's told and the continuation of that story that that can bring you into a different world. Uh maybe that's why I like science fiction nowadays, because it's like it, it allows you to envision a different world. Uh that um sort of for me is really interesting because it it it's not directly tied, but it is kind of tied to what I do as a researcher then, because it requires me I think being a good researcher requires you to be able to envision a different world. Because uh, to me, that's the point of doing research is to make the world a better place. So like, I don't wanna do research that sort of um, relives or recaptures all the trauma that we've been through as indigenous people. I wanna do research that sort of thinks forward and thinks about, well, if we could get mainstream um, people thinking more like indigenous people, the whole world's gonna be a better place uh so what would that what does that look like what does that look like in the future how am I going to put this into into uh into action in the way that's going to make sense so for me it's that sort of future futurism and future oriented um writing (laughs) that I like to read (laughs) because it also influences my own uh views of the future and, and the possibilities of the future not in a dystopian sense but in a Like I'm not really that much into the dystopian future type things, but more into the, uh, having hope for things being better in the future and how that might, because then I can sort of think about how can I put that into action in the research I'm doing now to make, make a a better future possible.
0: The final question is who is someone or who are some people that you look up to?
1: Oh, (laughs) that's getting hard to think of. Oh, there's so many people. Um, I guess first and foremost, my parents, um, you know, they went through university at a time when it was really hard. Um, You know, my dad used to get comments uh, when he started working. Like, I mean, this isn't even getting through university yet, but even working as a professor, he used to get comments about uh, people asking him what floor he cleaned at the university. Um, You know, both him and my mom being accused of only being hired because of affirmative action. So just their ideas, not being um, seen as being valid or good enough or as good as white people's ideas um, just because of who they were um, and who they are. So I really look up to both of them. Uh, and then my siblings too. It's like <laughs> the, the work that my sister's doing around land-based education and sort of queering uh, the academy and queering sort of a lot of these ideas of indigenous um well, a lot of indigenous stuff can be still very um, supportive of the heteropatriarchy. So, working to change that has been—I re, I really admire her for that—and uh, and how that's so tied to the land—that's uh, that, really fantastic. And then my brother is as is well as is, is—you know—he's working now at Red River. Uh, what is the polytechnic? something polytechnic college I can't how, how it's changed but it used to be Red River College now it's Red River Polytechnic that's it um working in administration but sort of so the stuff that he does is actually putting this into practice and changing uh academia so that's awesome I think so i, I look up to my everyone else in my family is just just so much um but, yeah, I don't know. And <laughs> look up to my kids too, and my partner, my partner for putting up with me, <laughs> but just, you know, I don't know. I just everywhere around me, I look and I see people doing things and it's just, I, you know, I just really appreciate people that can just be in the world and be themselves and just, um, get out and do things. I know that there's that active, um, you know, when people are mindful of what they're doing, uh, and do, but then do things deliberately. So, not just sort of accept the status quo, but actually get out and do something to make change. And but they practice what they preach. Oh um, man, I just admire everyone that does that. So, it's hard to pinpoint, you know, in specific individuals. It's just sort of like more like this stereotype or archetypal person that actually wants to make a difference in the world. So, they actually go out and start doing it. And it's just, they, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. Where can people find your work? If they want to get copies of the book or other things you've written or read about your research, where can they find you? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, mm-hmm. if they want research a ceremony, how is say to support your local independent bookseller? Yes. <laughs> By getting it yes. there. If you can't get it there, then may as well get it straight from the publisher. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's another thing that's, you know, yeah, you can have radical independent uh, publishers, but you also need to support those booksellers that, uh, and it's usually the independent bookstores that that help to promote those the books that those independent publishers are putting out.
0: Don't be shy to order your favorite books from those booksellers because just if they don't have them on the shelves doesn't mean they can't get it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for this conversation, Sean. Oh, you're very welcome. It was fun. You've been listening to my conversation with Sean Wilson as part of the 30 Wood Podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favourite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your favourite episodes. A fortress of magnitude they can't subdue liberation is radical you're telling me my dreams have to be practical when all these global systems are tyrannical point of view more than two